Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. Hello. I have a guest on the podcast with me today named Dave Mailer. He's the editor of Triggerfish Critical Review, which is an online poetry journal, on the board of the Oregon Poetry Association, and a poet who had a book entitled Roadworthy published last year. And I hope we can talk about all of that stuff more very soon. But for this segment, I sit down with him as a poetry friend. We attend the same church, And once we realized we shared an interest in poetry, he began generously sharing his extensive library. Before that, I was stuck in a rut with what I was reading, especially when it came to contemporary poetry. I was having a hard time finding anything to love. But Dave would bring me curated sacks of books to church, and I was surprised to find that actually reading excellent currently written poetry was what ended up relighting the fire that the classical traditional stuff had kindled a long time ago but it was harder to find there's a lot of boring stuff out there a lot of disturbing stuff but Dave helped me find some stuff to sink my teeth into that's been written more recently so I'm very thankful for that and Dave thank you for all those book loans and for being here today no it's a pleasure it's great to be able to act like a poet for a while it'll be fun yeah So right after the very first episode of Take This Poem, when I was talking about poetry being given as a gift, you emailed me and said that you had a story of a time that that had happened. So I've been really looking forward to hearing that story. So tell me who who gave you the gift? What was the poem? I want to hear all about that. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to have to back up uh, before I answer those specific things mm-hmm. and just kind of tell you some backstory and and that is that you know this is kind of why the gift was given um as a teen um my god was knowledge and science and i remember reading the first few chapters of genesis and deciding that i needed to check the bible out just so i could check a box and mm. um write it off um to me, Christianity represented everything that opposed itself to my God of science and knowledge, though I didn't view them as religion or myself as religious. Um, to talk to God seemed to me either an imaginative exercise or a delusion. And as one atheist recently said of prayer, it's like talking to your hand. Um, That's what you thought of prayer as being? I at did, that point. yeah. I didn't believe God existed. So if people thought they were praying, I just it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I really didn't understand. I mean, that part, you know, a person is complicated and there's several parts. And so part of me maybe would admit God might exist, but the other part of me was saying no way, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I, I had intended to read the Bible, but I didn't get past the creation account before concluding that it was complete crap. Um, in order to, feel better about myself, I think one of my pleasures was to collect Christian tracks. And chick tracks were my favorite. I read them for entertainment uh, whenever I found one, and I even sought them out so I could examine the angle, and I rated them. Um, 
this was the early, or it was the late 70s, and I grew up in San Jose. I went to West Valley Junior College in Saratoga after high school, and I took two classes from a professor there that I admired. I took this class from this professor, mm -hmm. and um, from Blake to the present to satisfy, and to satisfy a comp requirement, two classes. And... Um, I remember reading Blake's Book of Thel, and it seems like it was Wordsworth as well. You know, these romantic British poets, yeah. or actually, Blake was pre-romantic. But, you know, reading that work, uh, you know, the words seemed to vibrate and light up off the page. There was a numinous quality in the poetry that I'd never found in any other poets. You know, I'd had mm -hmm. poetry in high school, but nothing hit me like those romantics. I was going to ask you about poetry in high school. If well, I took an advanced placement, um, mm -hmm. and I had, like, I remember writing a paper on William Carlos Williams' The okay. Yachts, and, you know, analyzing that poem, and, you know, of course, Williams is an American, and he's, there's nothing numinous about his work, mm -hmm. even though The Yachts was really kind of creepy, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird poem for Williams. Um, some people think it was anti-capitalism or whatever. I, I don't actually. But you hadn't encountered Blake and. I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd memorized a Frost poem in grammar mm -hmm. school, you okay. know, and I'd read Williams, but I'd never read. Mm -hmm. I, I hadn't done a lot of reading of poetry, and I loved this AP class, mm -hmm. and I was a good essay writer, but I, I didn't think in terms of gee I want to write or I'm a poet or I want to read poetry necessarily it was just uh, I, I probably was attracted to fiction more mm -hmm. so to be honest with you Blake had something about it too I did read it in high school for the first time and it felt like there was something I guess numinous is a good word but there was something like mystical and like fire inside of it somehow I felt like well so it was it's a ironic different... that with um, <laughs> someone who's like God is science and knowledge mm -hmm. to be attracted to a mystic because it was just mm -hmm. something I've mm -hmm. never encountered. So mm -hmm. I kind of like through the back door yeah. was reading these religious, you know, Wordsworth was a Christian, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and there was something there. And so that was a gateway. Um, so when you got to college, were you planning on kind of going liberal arts, humanities? Or I was, I had, I was direction. planning on... Um, the things that really attracted me were psychology and marine biology and okay. forestry. Okay. So you were planning to go a more science-y route but had these totally. um, prereqs. I have to say I love stories of General that people ed. who get snagged yes. on those English requirements they didn't know they needed and end up changing the course of their life. So, so Well, this fun. professor in this British Lit class was so good. Um, and I just loved them. I was so passionate about the reading that I just flipped to an English degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't vocational at all. It was just, this is my passion. I don't really care what I end up doing in life. This is what I'm, if I'm going to spend four years studying, I'm going to read mm -hmm. literature. That's yeah. what I'm going to study. Yeah. I know the feeling. Okay. <laughs> so you wanted to write about these gospel tracks. Well, right. And so getting me back on track. Yes. So the thing is, um, I used a chick track, Demon's Nightmare, um, as my um, 
thing to deconstruct and analyze. Oh, I see you have a copy of it here. I did. You I must brought have my a good essay. filing system. Keeping track of that all yeah, over I, the years. I kept a lot of essays. I've thrown mm-hmm. a lot of stuff away, but that one was. This was a special thing. I mean, um, mm-hmm. after the fact, I didn't necessarily know what was going on at the time, of course, but. Mm-hmm. This was a key part of my testimony, probably the pre-conversion um, element that sowed some major seeds, and it, you know. And it's a handwritten essay. It, it well, that's how we used to do it. I we, know. Um, <laughs> in the in the seventies or like 80, 1980 maybe was when yeah. I did this. So love it. The teachers would, ex- yeah, profs would accept handwritten essays and, yeah. you know, you double space them mm-hmm. and you were trying to be careful and yeah. you didn't awesome. have to type it, you know, and typewriters were really, I, I remember typing my essays, <laughs> Sally would type my essays in college <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just a chore because yeah, they were unforgiving. Yes. Yeah. And hard, you know, you had to press down hard. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So anyway, we, you know. Um, I turned in this essay and it turned out to be like a 10 page thing. I really took some time, (laughs) you know, analyzing the fallacies in this thing. And, um, you know, the professor was very kind, very patient. He was subtle in his responses. Um, I know now that he was definitely a Christian, but he wasn't overt at all about it. Um, Mm. He, I, I you know, I didn't remember, but he gave me a copy of screw tape letters, you know, kind of to up the game on my chick tract. Mm. Um, and, you know, wrote a note, I hope you enjoy this, you know, this screw tape letters by Lewis. And, and then later he gave me a copy of Hopkins poetry and, um, it, you know, in an office hour, he just kind of acted like it was just sort of like, oh, you might like this. Um, mm-hmm. I have an extra copy, you know, and, you know, made it very subtle. Right. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily read Hopkins um, immediately, but but he became probably my favorite poet. Um, you know, it was a gentle nudge, mm-hmm. and and it was you know I kept the book and valued it, and then was you know I guess he if if I were to pick one poet, Hopkins would be it. Mm, I was going to ask if you if yeah. that was still the case. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to narrow it down to one and. You know, when you're dealing with somebody who is over a hundred years old, it loses its cachet, and there are other things vying for your attention. But Hopkins is always solidly. I mean, yeah. you know, you know that dream we have of having dinner with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and who would you invite? Mm-hmm. He would definitely be one. No, so. I had a major crush on Hopkins in college. In fact, I remember just staring at his picture and feeling like <laughs> we were meant to be together. But he's a Jesuit priest, and I would have to time travel. But just feeling like if I could deal with the time travel part, I could get back there. And thankfully, you know, I found a live person to get married to, and it ended I fine. Think, but I, I just had it's that a good same... thing that that worked out that way. <laughs> I just felt like, but maybe the same thing. Maybe dinner would have been okay. Maybe we wouldn't have had to get married. But just wanted to be in the same place and yeah. just see someone like that that these words came out of, and be able to see what is that person like and. So, yeah, something about him. Yeah. He's really interesting because he goes from ecstatic and delight and then, you know, almost manic depressively into mm-hmm. despair. And, you know, he lived a very difficult life. His art was subjected to his vocation. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, at the end of his life, he was teaching in a Dublin high school, I guess it would be, you know, overburdened by reading hundreds of papers. He was teaching Latin and Greek, and, you know, it was just tedious and depressing, and he, you know, it was the, the weather was hard and, you know, kind of a bleak, dreary yeah. environment of this school and feeling disconnected. And Was he published during his lifetime? Like, where his students, okay, did they so know he, their teacher he, was writing this stuff? Um, I wonder. He did have a poem or two published. I think The Wreck of the Deutschland was published. So it wasn't that he'd never been published, but he, he would have dwindled into obscurity. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I don't remember if Wreck of the Deutschland was in something like a Catholic circular. It might not have actually been a literary mm-hmm. venue at all. Um, so he would have been, had it not been for Robert Bridges, he would have totally been forgotten about, okay. um, which is a whole other story. Yeah. Um, you know, the relationship between Bridges. Bridges was the poet laureate of England and kind of a competent but boring poet as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he's kind of, a, not that it's terrible work, it's, but it's just no one's going to be reading Bridges now. Right. Um, whereas, well, he made his contribution by getting Hopkins well, yes. the attention he deserved. Maybe that, yeah. Before we move fully on to Hopkins, I'm curious if you ever talked to your professor again. Did he ever know that you ended up loving Hopkins and poetry and even coming to faith? Or was it just, was nope. that your own, he just handed that to you and that was the extent of no. that interaction? Um, yeah, I mean, as a community college prof... I never did see him again. He didn't know the end of the story. Um, he just quietly went about his business of promoting literature and sowing seeds and well, being. Quiet. In a way, that's sad that you that he couldn't know. But there's also something hopeful about that. Thinking you really have no clue, like the gift of a book to somebody or a certain word or just something at a certain time can go on to make such a big difference, and you don't hear about it. Well, I think it'll be a shock when we make it to heaven and, you know, our reward is to see some of the fruit of our labor that we didn't even realize we did. The ripples that went out oh, yeah. in the chain reaction. Yeah. Yep. Oh. I kind of think that, you know, little words here and there or little seeds sown here and there, you know, you'll actually meet these people and get to shake their hand, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll be that to me. That's what the reward is, you know, yeah. when the thrones that we throw yeah. at the feet of Jesus are going to be these people that were affected by yeah. things we did. That would be amazing to get to know that someday. Have you ever given copies of Hopkins to anybody? No. <laughs> but you do lend and give uh, much poetry, so who knows? That might have had similar. Well, you know, after this podcast and, and all the work you're doing, I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna be paying a lot more attention to all the gifts of poetry that I'm handing out, and I'll probably be more self conscious about it. You know, mm-hmm. maybe even aggressive about pushing poems on people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, like I mentioned, you've already given me so many gifts just by stacks like you might like these you can do kind of the sorting hand me some stuff i might be interested i can give it back buy the one that i loved the most you give me a fresh stack so even that i mean it's a big deal for me to be able to have a place to learn more about what's going on and it's hard to know what somebody needs or Mm -hmm. where they're at um 
and you know, I just half the time I'm handing things out of things that have affected me, whether that mm-hmm. you know and that I really think is good, and I want to pass it on, but, mm-hmm. you know. And then sometimes I try to figure out, okay, what does Mary need? What mm-hmm. what kind of poet's going to help her? You know, and mm-hmm. speak to her. So. Yeah. Once you start on this rabbit trail, you read a poet and they are influenced by somebody else. Right. So then you check out who they're influenced mm-hmm. by and it just leads to others. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, you know, which I'll, I know you're going to ask me what poets I would recommend. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways to do it is to look at anthologies. Mm-hmm. But I'm jumping. I agree. Out. Let's talk about that later. Let's talk, let's dig into Hopkins. Yes. So before yes. we read a poem... <laughs> Is there... Well, so I just wanted to say a few things real quick. Um, Hopkins dates were 1844 to 1889. He died just shy of 45. Um, He was a convert to Catholicism, uh, influenced by Cardinal Newman, and eventually became a Jesuit priest. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing, you know, like before I read a poem, one thing to note about his poetry is that... um, he was a trained musician and an accomplished composer of fugues and like canons in which there's a basic pattern stated and developed in overlapping variations. You know, that sort of thing goes on in his poetry as well. Um, mm. He was also, you know, he kept a diary and a journal and he sketched in it. And, you know, there's a lot of visual. I mean, I, I don't know. I sort of uh, um, view the sonnets like canvases. Um mm-hmm often on a, on an ecstatic sensory or linguistic overload um, mm-hmm. you know they're they're layered with words and clauses and um, you know I think maybe I'll read this quote from Hopkins because it kind yeah. of talks a little bit about what how he views his poems or, or poetry in general he says um, poetry is speech framed to be heard for its own sake and interest even over and above its interest in meaning. Hmm. Some subject matter and meaning is essential to it, but only as an element necessary to support and employ the shape which is contemplated for its own sake. The other thing I just wanted to point out really quick is that he was really, you know, some of the words that he uses sound really odd or archaic. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that they, maybe they are archaic, but, you know, what... What he what he thought was really important was spoken language, and so hanging out with farmers and yeah. you know in an agricultural environment, he was using words that actually were commonly spoken mm-hmm. in those days. And and to us it sounds odd, but you know one of the things that makes him more modern was not only the fragmentariness of the writing and the piling on of stuff, but also um, just the fact that he was using common speech mm-hmm. kind of like you know you, you think of uh, Williams with his p- non-poetic diction and how shocking that was at the turn of the century well Hopkins was doing the same thing in England mm-hmm. to some degree with farming interesting terminology and jargon so, so some of the words that are we stumble over seem strange or made up might have actually been in common speech then and we're just not aware of that well and he was doing weird stuff with yeah. grammar and language also but he but he also i don't i don't think most people realize he was pulling from a lot of common yeah commonly spoken just not common to us 
Yeah. He if he says poetry is speech framed to be heard for its own sake, I wonder why it's so hard to read Hopkins out loud. <laughs> it is well, so he so you difficult know, again, like a musical score. He actually had to notate, you know, with accents and like sometimes he has the lines divided with a a line. You mm-hmm. know, his poetic line is li- is divided with a a line. So he gives he's giving notation and direction how to read it and. Um, so that you know, that's another thing that emphasizes the musical score element. It's um, it is hard to read, and I I don't know what he would have sounded like if I'm sure he was good at reading his own work. Yeah, I wish I could know how he would. Um, Very challenging. I mean, you know, me. if you know how fun it is to listen to Dylan Thomas, and mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, is interesting about um, Hopkins has studied Welsh and he spent some time in Wales and so that's where this word drunk Dylan Thomas-ish kind of yeah. Wales and Welsh influence comes from I think and you know he, he came through the back way towards Old English mm. with Welsh I mean that's yeah interesting so this is part of the reason why he's hard to read it's just it's, uh, it's he's, he's drunk on words really okay well Let's do it anyway, even though it's difficult. Which poem would you like to read first today? Well, I'd like to do uh, Carrying Comfort. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to give it a stab. We'll see how I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have to hit redo on this one. Yeah, let's go for it. All right, Carrying Comfort. Not, all not, Carrying Comfort, despair, not feast on thee, not untwist, Slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or, most weary, cry, I can no more. I can, can something, hope, wish day come, not choose not to be. But ah, but oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou root on me, thy ring world, right foot rock, lay a lion limb against me, Scan with darksome, devouring eyes my bruised bones, and fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heaped there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why? That my chaff might fly, my grain lie, sheer and clear. Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since, seems, I kiss the rod, hand rather, my heart low, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod, me, or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one? That night, that year of now-done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with my God, my God. Hmm. So, um... You know, in talking about this, there's some things I wanted to say about, um, you know, this style of sonnet. Um, Many of the best poets who write poems to or about God or have anything to do with belief in any deep or meaningful way do so like David the Psalmist or John Donne or one of Hopkins' models and favorites, Milton. Emily Dickinson, who was his contemporary, 
or in our own time and culture, Jarman, Mark Jarman, uh, Jane Kenyon, they all compose poems and often sonnets either full of faith or exploring honestly their doubts, affliction, depression, which sometimes approach despair. Hopkins composed his own sonnets of desolation or terrible sonnets. He wrote them towards the end of his life and described them to Bridges as the thin gleanings of a long, weary while. Hmm. Yeah, they were, that reminded me of a psalm when you were reading it. I've read it many times in certain phrases that I remembered, but certain that I hadn't, but it was sounding a lot like a psalm this time. Yeah, there's a couple things that you you wouldn't get audibly that mm. you you know that you have to see visually mm-hmm. I mean I think I think it's funny how auditory the poems are but then they're also visual as well it's that mu- yeah. it's this musical score and the canvas idea you know so like when I said ring world I'm he's talking about wringing your hands that with kind a of, W yes yeah. and then when he says my god my god at the end which is obviously quoting a psalm um the first my God is in parentheses. So mm. one of the challenges of reading this aloud is knowing how fast to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you could read it slow and or you could read it fast. And I think either way would be one way to, you know, two different yeah. ways to do it just as well. Amazing that him and Emily Dickinson were writing at the same time. I hadn't really realized that I made that connection. Yeah. Um, this, <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, it is interesting to compare the two. They they both had their um, their posthum. Well, both both had brushes with publication, but not for real. You know, she had a brush with publication and then just sort of turned away from it and wrote to her friends mainly and included mm-hmm. poems and letters. And Hopkins was posthumously published by Bridges, and you know, I just Bridges annoys me because. You know, and he uh, wrote his preface introducing Hopkins' poetry. He basically spent the bulk of the time criticizing Hopkins. And yeah, great friend. Well, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, so so Dickinson, I think, lived longer. Let's see, her dates were like 1830 to 86. His were 44 to 89. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they were writing it identically at the same time, but across the ocean and, and in diametrically opposed ways. Her, her way was just so brief and, mm-hmm. you know, words, it was wit and rhetoric and each word meant a lot. Whereas, you know, Hopkins was on overload yeah. with layering. But the way she used language at times with the kind of... I don't know. I don't want to say twisting, but doing what it took to get extra meaning or sound out of words you wouldn't expect, kind of making things up, shoving things together. Um, I And the similar themes, like you said. Faith and doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if because they were writing privately, that's part of what made it be able to be so good. Like if Hopkins was trying to write for some sort of audience to be published in the local newspaper, would he have been able to dig down it allowed them to be very idiosyncratic mm-hmm. and very individual and raw and and just sort of do whatever the heck they wanted as opposed to catering to an audience or or worrying about you know one of the interesting things about both poets was they were both edited their idiosyncrasies were edited out 
Mm. So like in the early editions of Dickinson, her grammar's corrected. You know, there are changes in the punctuation and, mm. you know, um, and then Bridges never really understood Hopkins. He, he realized he was a genius. And, but at the same time, he, he criticized his um, uh, overwrought, you know, uh, exaggerations and... Hmm. Um, you know, these, these people that were their supposed mentors and helps were actually hurtful because they represented the establishment in the yeah. times, right? So Trying to change the poets into being more like what well, was going on. It's a tough thing yeah. because part of the genius of Dickinson and Hopkins was that they, they were um, so novel and original mm-hmm. but then you know they actually earned the novelty and the the originality came, sprung from really who they were and what they were doing as opposed to just some artificially imposed superficial yeah. thing you know yeah. you know and so you have to be careful with poets that uh, maybe it's something from our era that we have to worry about we always want to be novel and original but without earning it. I know. That's what I'm thinking. I wonder if I even would have been able to recognize Dickinson or Hopkins if I was back then because I don't tend to like things that are weird to be weird or, you know, that right. I, I resist that instead of thinking, oh, that's cool. That's so different. So I might have been one of the lame people who wouldn't have recognized it. Well, sometimes it takes 50 to 100 years yeah. for people to come into their own and that's just the way it is. I mean, they... There was something about both of them that prefigured the moderns. Mm-hmm. And um, one one critic, John Wayne, talks about um, simultaneity and irreducibility. And that was something about Hopkins that prefigured the moderns. And what he means by that is everything seems to happen at once. Yeah. Um, That's why it's hard to know if you should read fast or slow. Like you right. said, if you read slowly, then each word can be heard, but there's this feeling of it all happening at once that makes you want to go more quickly so the words are closer to each other. Yeah, I think you could probably do a slow reading and make it work, and you could do a fast Mm -hmm. reading. I mean, obviously, with a musical score, they tell you the measure, Mm -hmm. but we don't... Yeah. We don't know that. Um, You know, Emily Dickinson was doing hymn meter, Mm -hmm. so she would just be like, Singing along, you know. Yeah. You can set those to the tune of Amazing Grace. Have you ever tried that? So Amazing Grace is hymn meter. And so any of her... Well, um, then she's screwing with it, right? She's just Sometimes, yeah. Language. Yeah, like I think... What's the one that I did the episode on already? I died for beauty. I died for beauty, but was scarce right. adjusted in the tomb. It matches up perfectly, so many of her poems. So it's just fun. Sing yourself some Emily what Dickinson was going songs on? once in a while. <laughs> What's going it's on? It's like with that? eight, eight five, eight five or something iambic pentameter. And why do you, why do you? Okay, so why there's you, other hymns too, not just Amazing Grace. Was it just that she went to church and this was how she entertained her? Why would she do that? I mean, being so original and different. Here she is mm-hmm. using this staid, tried and yeah. true thing. Yeah, I think she was taking that familiar meter and. Putting stuff into it you would never hear in church. Different words, different topics explored. 
But yeah, I wonder I wonder why that's what she fell into. Too bad we can't ask her. I know. Really. And, okay. and nobody was around in her day to ask her. You mm-hmm. know? <sighs> well, let's do some more poems. Yeah. Okay, so I thought I would read Peace. Um, part of the... Part of the reason for my choices is just to make poems, read poems that are a little easier. Um, and this one is fun because it's, he subverts a cliche. Um, I mean, you know, peace, like love and other topics, is these are things that you, you just don't really, or soul, you know, these mm-hmm. words you don't put in poetry, but he dares to do it. And... You know, and then not only that, but he is bringing in the Holy Spirit as the dove. And so it's just a lot of fun. Um, I like it for that reason. Peace. When will you ever, peace, wild wood dove, shy wings shut, your round me roaming end, and under be my boughs? When, when, peace, will you, peace? I'll not play hypocrite to my own heart. I yield you do come sometimes, but that piecemeal peace is poor peace. What pure peace allows, alarms of wars, the daunting wars, the death of it? Oh, surely, reaving peace, my Lord should leave in lieu some good. And so he does leave patience exquisite, that plumes to peace thereafter. And when peace here does house, He comes with work to do. He does not come to coo. He comes to brood and sit. Wow. I don't think I've actually ever read or heard that poem before. But our readers, if they're interested, I think they should look up Emily Dickinson's poem, God Gave a Loaf to Every Bird, and compare, because I'm seeing some kind of wild similarities there. I think they would have been friends. Maybe they should have gotten married. I know. They should have known each other because they <laughs> yeah. could have, you know, um, commiserated. Are, yeah, their poems are talking to each other. Okay. Well, that's yeah. that's amazing. Another sonnet of his talks about the Holy Ghost as a bird. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. That's probably a more common one, but... I think poets like to talk about birds yeah. or, or two. I know I do. I said I would read a Hopkins poem as well, and I was surprised by how difficult it was to read it aloud. This one, I know a lot of it in my head and think about it every fall. Spring and fall to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves, like the things of man, You with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by. Nor spare a sigh, though worlds of wanwood leaf meal lie. And yet you will weep and know why. Now no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same. Nor mouth had, no, nor mind expressed, what heart heard of, ghost guest. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Did I say Wanwood right? How would you say that? 
Is it Wan? No, I think it's Wan. Okay, that's I'm yeah. just kind of guessing, but so this was one you'd mentioned wanting to read today. What made you attracted to that one? Well, you know, again, it's I think it's more on the surface understandable just hearing it read. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, talking about the major themes of birth and death, and you know, our veil of tears. You know, I was just kind of thinking today that you know maybe a life like we have here is is kind of like our period in the womb. You know, where we're we haven't really even started yet. Um, and you know, Hopkins is talking about spring and fall and birth and death and mm-hmm. um, weeping. And there's so many fall poems that the is basically saying we're sad in the fall because we're going to die, but this is one of the most beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, how I think of it as being. Well, especially in the Willamette Valley here, mm-hmm. fall is the best time of year, I think. Yeah, it's an amazing time of year. This is getting long, but I want to try to read Kingfishers because I just feel... Do it, yeah. Can I find it in your yeah, book, or you like, can? Um, right here. Okay. So the first line of this is, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. That's often the title. And this one's just been in my mind lately. It's beautiful. It's newer to me. I want to share it. So here we go. And this one's about things just being so much what they are. And I've been kind of talking to the kids. We have chickens. We have cats. And I can tell they just love how cat-like our cats are. You know, everything they do is so essentially cat. And the chickens just act exactly like chickens do all the time. And you start to love that. And I think there's a little bit of that in here. And that's part of why it's been coming to my mind lately. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. Selves go itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man, justice is, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Each poem of his is a feast, mm-hmm. and there's just, you can sit there and mull over it. I mean, and it also, you know, as you and I, discovered we you know it's just fun to read them it's it's a challenge but it's fun because it's a challenge maybe yeah and I find myself fond of the parts that are the most difficult to say (laughs) like like a difficult child or something that you can't help respecting for how much trouble they give you as tumbled over rim and roundy wells stones ring Mm -hmm. probably uh you know a critique group would just rip that to shreds and just say no you know you don't do that many r's you know right up against each other and Mm-hmm. It's amazing, though. It does have that sound to me of the round thing rolling. Oh, you know, right. I don't yeah. know how he does that, but it's been a, one of my favorites lately. So 
What would you like to end with, Dave? I do want you to share any poetry recommendations for others so that they can maybe benefit from that like I have, but was there anything else? Well, there were a couple things about Hopkins that I thought were fun. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, again, Hopkins in his own words, he was writing to Bridges and he said, um, some of my rhymes I regret, but they are past changing, grubs and amber. There are only a few of these. Others are unassailable. Some others, again, there are, which malignity may munch at, but the muses love. <laughs> and then, you know, I was just listening to a podcast, or I was listening to a, actually a YouTube of Jay Perini talking about T.S. Eliot's forecourt, or mm-hmm. actually he was giving a talk about God, you know, and um, talking about Eliot. And he just happened to mention I.A. Richard's talking about Hopkins and saying, you know, I.A. Richards said, his matches don't strike on my box. Hmm. And, you know, it's just funny to think of, you know, I mean, there are people that Hopkins rubbed wrong. They just don't get him. And, you know, Bridges got him a little bit, maybe halfway or something. It's an interesting thought, though, that it takes the poet and it takes the reader and together the fire comes. But it isn't, not every oh, poet yeah. and reader is a match. No, no. There, there's poets that speak to some audiences mm-hmm. and not others. And that's something you have to realize. And as an editor, I've discovered, you know, that it isn't just about quality. It's about taste. And everybody has a certain taste, mm-hmm. you know. And some sometimes taste is well-developed and sometimes it's not. Um, you can develop taste yeah. from reading. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it can change through life too. There can be, I've found poetry when I was 20 that I thought was extremely right. boring that, you know, 15, 20 years later is extremely interesting and totally stuff yeah. that used to seem so romantic back then that now seems more boring. And so that can change. Well, yeah. So you were going to ask me a question about recommending yeah, I mean, if someone was... Think of someone toward the beginning of reading poetry. So maybe not, you know, loving Hopkins yet, but just kind of wanting to get started. What books or yeah. poets would you recommend? Yeah, so so there's probably two ways to answer this question. And I'll, I'll do both. One needs to find poets who speak to them. You know, we were just talking about that. And one of the best ways to find poetry and poets that will resonate with you is to read contemporary anthologies um, Mm -hmm. you know where you're going to be exposed to just a few poems by many people and from this you can hone in on the poets from a group that talk about themes or subject matter in a style that speaks to you um, that you'd like to spend more time with that's Mm -hmm. I always recommend anthologies you know and and probably the best thing to do is to do you know start with contemporary ones Um, not everyone is going to read Blake and have the words light up off the page Mm -hmm. so you know one way you can do it is um, look at a region like get anthologies of northwest poets or Oregon poets another way to do it is um, to do the Best American Poetry Series. They have a different editor every mm-hmm. every year. And so you get kind of their taste, you know, each year. Yeah. And then you get a broad mix of the best poetry in all the literary magazines, you know, according mm-hmm. to them. Um, or, you know, you could do, if you 
like if you're like Mary, you know, you would grab one like a hundred poems to memorize, or you could start with Garrison Keillor's good poems or Billy Collins Poetry 180 or, you know, or, or there's thematic ones, um, you know, like nature or yeah, you know, based around a theme an anthology based around. Yeah. A theme. Christian Wyman has a anthology on joy, mm-hmm. which I think both you and I have that book, you know, and I'm just starting to read it. Um, and that's pretty fascinating because you get a sense of what Christian Wyman thinks about joy. Um, yeah, well, I appreciate his effort. I think he might say this in the intro, but we've talked about before that it's hard to write happy poems. It's hard to yes. sometimes write about the best things in life. And so he just went for it trying to make this anthology with that as the theme. So I was really excited when I saw someone had tried that. And I have found Garrison Keillor's, what is it called? Good, Good, poems. Good Poems. So many people have had success with that as their gateway book into poetry. So really? I would highly recommend that one, yes. Yeah. Maybe. The, cha- the challenge with poetry is mm-hmm. it isn't whether or not you like it, but whether or not you've read poems that speak to you. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think that poetry is so broad and so kind of important that everybody would love it if they found mm-hmm. poets that spoke to them yeah. and read poetry that, you know, because it can be so many different things and do so many different kinds of work that it's just a matter of actually locating, unless you're just someone who refuses to read, I suppose, or, mm-hmm. you know, but, but then almost everybody accesses poetry through song, right? They like yeah. to listen to music on the yeah. radio or wherever. Yeah. Um, that's how we get it mainly, I think. Well, I agree with anthologies, and I think through for a lot of years I would go to the library and grab maybe the one you were mentioning that there was one editor each year, like Best Poems best, of 1994. Best American Poetry, yeah. Yeah, and that, I did enjoy that to some extent, but the anthologies that really I enjoyed were when they were chosen by many different people. So... Oh. One, I know these have funny names and I got these on accident. The library just recommends them and so I put them on hold. But there was poems that make grown men cry and then poems that make grown women cry. (laughs) So each one is a poem and then a notable figure, usually an obscure actor or something, giving the poem like, this is why this poem means so much to me. And for me, that extra layer of getting to read why people chose this poem whether it's my third grade teacher made me memorize this or this is what my dad you know to hear that second level of a real person's voice introducing a beloved poem i think can be really helpful when you're trying to find kind of like your podcast maybe that's what i'm trying to do yeah yeah and i actually this one i just got from the library the poem i turned to actors and directors talking about poems that inspired them again it was a random pick but I'm actually going to do a couple episodes on this one because it was so fun to hear those background stories yeah. of where they got these poems and what it's meant to them. And One of the things that in the back of uh, Best American Poetry that they used to do, I don't know if they still do or not, is the poet would, in their bio, after their bio statement, mm-hmm. they would give a little paragraph about what how the poem came about or what inspired them or hmm. they'd tell some little story yeah. and... I always found that really fascinating. That can help open it up, whether yeah. to hear their statement or somebody else's recommending it. It makes it seem so right. much less intimidating. It's like there's more dialogue going on that you can join into as you read. And Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
Any other recommendations, burning that you would give? Before well, so we wrap up? you know, it's really. I guess the so I said there were going to be two parts to my answer. One mm-hmm. one part was anthologies. The other part is um, poets that I love or that I would recommend personally. Mm-hmm. And you know, lists like this change over your lifetime and over even you know short time periods, um, and they just grow out of control. So. So what I what I thought I would do is recommend a few in different categories. So mm-hmm. like for general purposes, I like Jack Gilbert, um, Kevin Gooden, B.H. Fairchild, Jim Harrison. Religious writers, Christian writers that I like, Scott Cairns, Franz Wright, um, Marie Howe, Jane Kenyon, Mary Carr. Those are good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then prose poets, Killarney Clary, uh, Gary Young, and then just for fun, Charles Hood, Matthew Dickman. Um, Matthew Dickman is a Portland poet, and they're all these are all pretty much contemporary Americans, which doesn't mean that's all I read. But mm-hmm. what I find is, you know, whenever I go on a trip or something, you you want even even poets that you like you know you're not always in the mood to read something and so like I'll take a backpack full of 10 books of poems not knowing which one I'm going to actually turn to when I get wherever I'm going it's just yeah definitely um I mean that's how weird I am but no I understand and it's it's funny to me to see which ones I will go back to in certain moods and sometimes you don't want to read straight through feel like I need breaks sometimes. Yeah. You know, read a few Matthew Dickman poems and then take a break and then read a few more instead of just reading straight through. So, yeah, it's good to have a stack to draw from of different Yeah, options. so one thing I would, on that tack, get individual volumes um, because then you it's something bite-sized that you yeah. can actually make it through. If you get a big, fat, collected, you know, like I have a selected poems of Robinson Jeffers that I'm working through now. Mm-hmm. And, it's really intimidating, and that book has sat on my shelf for so long. Yeah, it's true. The slim little ones are so easy yeah. to throw in your bag, or they yeah. seem accessible, little little chocolate bar-sized books. <laughs> Better than the huge textbook-sized well, compilation I, I think, sometimes. I think we exploded your podcast length. I think we did, but I'm not that surprised. I had a feeling... <laughs> Between Hopkins and just getting to sit down and talk about poetry, it might be a while. So I'll have to have you back to talk about your own work. But That'd be great. Yeah, I look forward to it. But for now, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Both on the podcast and just in general helping me grow in my poetry love. It's nice to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Part of my vision for Take This Poem was to have it be interactive. I imagined it as a virtual bonfire poetry reading where friends, family, local poets, and you can come together to warm our hands on some poetry. So what would that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. You could send me a voice recording of you reading a poem to be included in a mailbag poetry reading. Commenting on the poem is welcome, but optional. Don't be shy. It's the only voice you got. What better use for it do you have than reading beautiful words out loud? Also, you could request a poem that you'd like to hear me read and ponder on the show. 
Or tell me what you've been thinking about these days and I could play literary matchmaker and choose a poem for you. And by the way, I am aware that I have a small but loyal following of youngsters out there and these invitations are all open to them as well. Send any of these or other ideas you have to take this poem podcast at gmail.com and join me in sharing good poems with this little community. I hope to hear from you soon.